the spring of 1998, a father and son come home from the farm to find the ladies and their family brutally killed by an intruder. This was not his first kill, nor his last attack. Over the next 20 years, a string of violent assaults across multiple states will finally be linked to one man. This is the case of Sherry and Megan Scherer. Thank you for coming back. This is Rachel. I am your host. And um, if you're new to the show, thank you so much for trying us out. As always, I do appreciate every share, follow, and all the interactions on the socials. If you'd like to donate to the show to help with production and contribute to a group donation at some point at the DNA Dough Project, you can find us at Buy Me Coffee. Our link is on the website at thetiesthatfind.com. Now, the Sherry and Megan Scherer case was actually profiled on The Genetic Detective. I never realized I'm doing a Genetic Detective episode until after I get done with the research, but I did watch it. It was a great episode, so definitely check it out. Um, I wasn't able to find it, like to watch it on TV on any of the streaming services, but if you just go to abc.com and go to the show, you'll be able to um, watch it there for free on, you know, on your computer or on your tablet or whatever it is. So definitely check it out. And with that, let's get into it. This week, we are in Portageville, Missouri, which actually straddles New Madrid County and Pemiscot County. New Madrid Sheriff's Department is going to end up working the Scherer case. Portageville is what we would call a really tiny, small, small town. It's only about two square miles in area, and the population has hovered around like 3,000 people since the 1970s. And there was only about 20,000 people in the whole county, New Madrid, since the 90s. And violent crime was pretty much next to nothing. So this is a really small, quiet town with farmlands where people just really take care of each other. And there's really nothing and no one notable that comes out of this tiny town except for the Shearer murders. So we're going to zoom in on the Shearer family themselves. The matriarch is Sherry Ann Walker, born August 18th, 1959, and she's going to be 38 when she was killed. She's married to local farmer Tony Shearer, and they have two kids. Son Stephen was born in 1983, and then his baby sister Megan Elizabeth was born on October 2nd, 1985. Megan was 12 at the time that she was murdered, and Stephen tells us that she was a very dedicated student and was so driven that getting anything but A's in school would get her upset. We also know that she was a basketball star at school, and she had just won a speech and debate contest the Friday right before she was killed. For Mom Sherry's part, she was very outgoing, and she did not shy away from telling you what she felt. So now here we are on Saturday, March 28th of 1998. Father and son go to work on the family farm. Now, it's been in Tony's family since he was a child, but now that he's older and he's got his own son, it's going to be him and Stephen that work the land. At this time, in the late 90s, cell phones are starting to come around for all of us, and the Shearers do have a cell phone. So at about 6.20 p.m., Stephen calls home and tells mom that they're on their way, but there's a tractor trailer that's trying to turn around on the highway, so they're pretty much stuck in traffic. Then about 20 minutes later, Tony calls home again to give Sherry an update on their ETA, but he doesn't get any answer. So Tony and Steve, they figure, well, maybe they just went to pick up a pizza for dinner or something. They finally arrive home after a long day at the fields at about 7 p.m., and they park in the garage. Before going inside... Dad puts his hand on mom's car and notices that it's not warm after all. So they must not have left the house after all. Hmm, This is weird. 
Once inside, Tony is checking the mail, and Steve just goes further into the house. This poor kid. He finds Sherry and Megan, and they're both lying on the living room floor. They had both been shot, and both were bound and gagged. Sherry was on her stomach in front of the couch, shot in the back of the head. And Megan had also been shot. And she was posed in a way that made it obvious that she had been raped. My God, it's just horrific. This poor 15-year-old kid. So he's screaming for dad. Dad comes in, sees the girls, of course, calls the police. Portageville Police Chief Ronnie Adams will comment on the living room that day. Quote, I've been a police officer for over 40 years, and that scene right there affected me more than any scene I had ever been at. Unquote. Highway Patrol investigator Don Wyndham says of the scene that, quote, what was really horrific part of this, not only was she assaulted and shot, but just horribly, she was posed like he wanted to show what he had done. I can tell you that he brought some items to help him control the victims, and I have evidence that I believe will show that he took those items back with him, unquote. Sherry was shot three times in the back of the head, and for Megan, aside from being shot, they did find she was sexually assaulted. Now, there was no semen found at the scene by police, but they did find a mark on Megan that they thought included some kind of DNA from the killer. And they took a swab of it, and it turns out it is saliva. And this is going to be the key to solving the case years later. Aside from that, they could find no other evidence that would lead them to a suspect. And in 1988, they really can't do anything with it because it's not semen or blood. It's just, it's spit, which is great for us in the, you know, in the 21st century, but not back then. But thank God that they knew enough to hang on to that swab of spit collected from Megan's body so they could go back to it once technology had evolved enough. As far as the evidence that we know police have to work with, she fought back and she fought back hard against her killer. Before they removed her body from the living room floor, police found touch DNA of the killer and his hair was in her hand. Baby girl. So the working theory is going to be that once whoever this was got inside, and they didn't find any signs of fourth century, let's remember that, he had had them put the family dog away, and then he bound and gagged them. Then he got Sherry on her belly on the floor, and then shot her in the back of the head, and then turned his attention to Megan. Now, before the day is up, police actually link this crime to another one just about 45-minute drive from Portageville across the state line in Tennessee. A few hours after leaving the Shearer home over in Dyersburg, there's a young mother and her kids who had just gotten home from grocery shopping. It's especially warm out tonight, and she's got the front door open to the trailer that they live in. And then this guy walks up to the door and knocks and tells her that he's looking for his friend Jeremy Taylor. But he's lost, and he can't find the street that Jeremy lives on. Now, this woman is suspicious right off the bat, and she just tries to figure out a way to get rid of him. So she picks up the phone to call a neighbor to ask about this Taylor guy, but the phone's not working. Why isn't it working? <laughs> well, she lies and she pretends that she is talking to someone on the other end. When she gets off the phone, she tells them to just go next door because they can help. But at that point, the man pulls his shirt up at the waist and pulls out a gun and telling her, we're going to take it inside. Now, this lady is a badass. Instead of backing into the trailer, she actually reaches for the gun to take it from him. But while they're struggling over it, she is still getting backed into the trailer, and she yells out to one of her kids to get the shotgun from the living room. 
whoa, awesome. Wow. Now, before the kid brings it in, though, the man is able to break free from mom, and he just decides to take off. The gun does go off, though, and she gets shot in the shoulder in the process. That is a badass story, man. She does give a composite description to the police. Uh, We figure out that we're looking for a white male somewhere between the ages of 30 and 50. And he's got a smaller frame, kind of slender. He's got medium length brown hair, but it is kind of graying. And he's got a mustache. He was also driving a maroon van from what she could tell. Police do link this attack and home invasion to Sherry and Megan's murders by comparing the bullets found on the bodies. Now, this is 1998, so DNA was unable to be put into CODIS because the testing was just not as concise as it was back then as it is now. Um, But they do get the case on America's Most Wanted within a few years. Fortunately, that's pretty much all they have. They don't really have anything else to go on. And then Dad and Steve have to pick up the pieces. They're mourning Sherry and Megan, and they just got to figure out how to start moving on, even if the police can't figure out who the hell did this to them. Steve tells us, quote, after everything happened, everyone told me that I had to be strong for my dad. So that's what I did. So sad. Sadly, Sherry's mom, Frances, will die in November of 1998, just eight months after her daughter and granddaughter were killed. She was 73 years old when she passed. Sherry's dad, Earl, is going to pass away in 2003, never knowing who it was that took Sherry and Megan away from the family. In 2006, DNA analysis was getting more concise, so the New Madrid County Sheriff's Department decides to try CODIS. No hits on a suspect, unfortunately, but there was an alert on another victim, and this time this was in Greenville, South Carolina. And I'll give you one guess as to the victim's gender and the motive. Yep, this victim is another female with another sexual assault, and this is Genevieve Zitricki. So who is Genevieve She was 28 when she was killed. She was recently divorced and living alone in an apartment at the Hidden Lake apartment complex in Greenville. Her brother Phil remembers her fondly, telling us, quote, She was a force of nature, a firecracker, a bundle of infectious energy, an intelligent, vibrant, and caring human being, unquote. On the night of April 6th, 1990, Genevieve got ready for bed and tucked herself in. And sometime in the night, her killer sneaks into the apartment through a sliding glass door in the back. He's carrying a hammer, and he's creeping through her house, and ultimately finds her fast asleep in her bedroom. But he doesn't wake her up, though. He just dives right in, attacking her, bludgeoning her with the hammer. And when he decides he's beaten her enough, he viciously rapes her, strangles her to be sure that she's dead, and then drags her to the bathroom, leaving her in the bathtub. He's going to leave it filled with water, And there's also a pair of pantyhose still wrapped around her neck. After that, he tosses the apartment, staging it to look like someone that she knew had done it. He left a message on the dresser mirror in black magic marker saying, don't fuck with my family. Now, of course, they're going to be interviewing everyone that she knows. And she's actually a pretty popular person and hosts pool parties a lot at the apartment complex where she lives. But it was later theorized that this was a ploy to get the police off of the stranger on stranger theory and just get her to zero in on somebody that she knew. Now, police say that she never even woke up. She didn't have a chance. Genevieve wouldn't be found for two days after she was killed. She didn't show up for work. And then when they called the apartment complex, a maintenance worker went to check on her. And that's how she was found. 
God, what is it with sex and violence that gets these fuckers so worked up? It's just so mind-blowing to me that for most of us, we know violence is wrong. We don't inflict violence on another person. It's the last thing on our minds as we go about our days. But then we get these perpetrators who think violence is like just like a pastime. Like no one has even done anything to piss them off. In fact, it's like they prefer victims that they don't know. They are just looking for a body to pummel or a hole to stick it in, as gross as that sounds. Now, I know I'm way overgeneralizing here. I do. I get it. But that's really what it boils down to. Violent attackers, sadists, they enjoy ravaging and brutalizing people. The thing that gets me with Genevieve, though, is that she wasn't even awake. And based on the autopsy, she was probably passed out the entire time. First, because she was asleep. And then, because the blows to her head kept her that way. Where's the joy in committing this assault on a victim that doesn't even know that you're there? Like, I don't, I'm just trying to understand. Some killers get off on seeing their victim is in pain or hearing them scream or cry or maybe physically fighting with them. That's, that's all part of the thrill, I, I'm assuming. But here, he's, he's got none of that from Genevieve. It makes us think... Did something happen to this guy when he was a kid? Was he just born this way? I just, I guess when it comes to these stranger on stranger attacks, there really can be no sense to it, you know? Like, aside from the classic trope of, I hate women, what else do we have to go on? It's just, it's just like some itch that they have to scratch. I, I mean, I'm no good without my morning coffee, but this guy needs to snuff out women's lives. I don't, I don't get it. I digress. I'm sorry. <laughs> Now, once police realize that the cases are linked, the sharers, mom is shot, the lady mom is shot in the shoulder, and now we have Genevieve from eight years earlier. Police tell us, quote, we had the FBI profilers that were coming in and looking at our case and looking at their case, and they explained the difference to us, which is that Greenville's homicide was probably one of his first, and the Portageville Dumble homicide, well, he had educated himself and sharpened some of his skills by then, unquote. So now that was all discovered and worked in 2006, eight years after the sharers were killed. But then we have to wait until 2017. And in May of 17, police get a CODIS alert. Turns out there's a new match. But unfortunately, it's not the suspect. Not himself, at least. It's another victim with his DNA on her. And this is another young lady, a 14-year-old. On Tuesday, March 11th, 1997, this guy comes up to the door. Who the hell is this piece of shit? He knocks on the door of a Memphis house, and we have four people in the house at the time. There's a woman, a 14-year-old girl, and two others. The lady answers the door. We don't know what was said, but he says he's going to steal their car. Ultimately, he just gets out his gun, saying once again they're going to take it inside, and forces himself inside the house. Part of the report is that he put on yellow dish gloves, had duct tape to subdue everyone, and after attacking, and yes, unfortunately raping the 14-year-old, he flees. Now, thank God he didn't kill anyone this time, but holy shit, four people are in this house, and he's able to subdue them all. And this is all so he could get his hands on a 14-year-old girl? It's crazy. So, of course, the police interview everyone, and they do come up with a sketch and remembering that they know nothing about the other attacks by the same guy at the time, this is back in 1997, they're only going on these particular interviews that they have with the people in the house. 
Later on, when he's found out, this rape survivor is going to tell us that the composite in the Dreyerberg case was actually better than the one that her police department came up with at the time. In any case, I'll post them all on the socials so you can compare them. And this story from 1997 is very similar to the mom who got shot in the shoulder, remember? We're gonna, he's trying to talk himself inside. He's using the phrase, take it inside. And this case in here in Memphis, he told them that he was looking to steal a car. But they tried to shut the door on him. He forced himself in the house anyway, and then he attacked. So this is what police are going to believe happened in Sherry and Megan's case. But if you notice, aside from getting in, all of these homes have preteen or teenage girls in them. Even the lady who got shot in the shoulder, she had come home with three kids, and she trusted one of them enough to actually go get a shotgun. And she had a shotgun in the living room, so I can't imagine that she was her house was full of toddlers. So this guy is a real pedo. Genevieve is in her late 20s, and by the 90s, he's targeting girls much younger than adult women, a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. But I have a question. So why wasn't this Memphis Rapes profile in CODIS already? by 2017. As I'm sure many of us know, unfortunately, rapes were not investigated as aggressively decades ago like they are now. And I'm not really clear on how aggressive law enforcement is with hunting down the rapists that, rapists that we currently have walking the streets right now. But back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even like right after Y2K, many of the rape reports were either one, not believed, or two, had a victim that wasn't considered worthy of justice, or three, well, at least she didn't die. We have other things to investigate. It seems like sexual assault was treated more like a bad bar fight back in the day. So even though the police in front of the cameras might be shouting, we're going to find our local rapist, they didn't really even bother sending these victims rape kits to even get tested. And nowadays, because CODIS is national, there's a good chance that your unknown perp in, I don't know, Bozeman, Montana, might already be there because he was convicted of the same thing in Pocatello, Idaho, just a few years earlier. But you don't know that until you test the kit. So at this point in time, in 2021, 2020, and because unfortunately rape statistics are not going down, there is this huge backlog of more than 200,000 unprocessed rape kits in the United States alone. And that's an estimate. Like, how disgusting is this? To know that this happens, and it's regularly acknowledged by police departments throughout the country, that there's actually evidence storage lockers full of these rape kits just sitting there waiting to be tested. But instead, some places, some departments, they just toss these rape kits in the trash to make room for other things. Oh, it's infuriating. But for me... I think for a lot of us, what is more important than solving unsolved rapes and murders? I just don't get it. I'm going to calm down. Sorry. <laughs> but for now, we're going to discuss it more probably in the next serial rape case that I do. Um, I haven't decided who I'm going to land on. And I do try to keep, it, keep them separate. So let's get back to this piece of shit's investigation. So I did make a map. I don't know if anybody's interested, but for me, for these serial perpetrators, once I see a third or fourth location in a storyline, I'm like, listen, I need to see this visually. How many of miles did this guy put in? Things like that. So this map is going to be on the socials also, aside from the composite sketches. All the towns involved in this case, save for South Carolina and Florida, 
are really all just close to the border that separates Missouri and Tennessee and um, also Arkansas, which is um, the hometown of where this piece of shit is from. So it's all kind of in an isolated area, at least most of them. So you'll be able to see it on the map. After all this time, and especially once they get the Memphis victim in the loop, police are thinking, this guy's got to be a trucker or some kind of other like transient guy. Someone who doesn't really live here, but has access to all these, look, but may come and go. All of these locations are off of highways or like even the interstate. But even with all the feelers that they put out, if this guy isn't local, then no one's going to recognize him in the composites. And this is going to explain why nobody is calling up saying, I know that I recognize a face on that composite because they don't know who this guy is because he's not from town. So police have nothing to go on. No other ways to work what are now four unsolved, but definitely related violent crimes. And each of these times when Megan's evidence gets a hit on CODIS with the match, Tony and Steven get their hopes up only to see that a few months later, the police are really still stuck. All they did was just add another victim. It's just, it's got to be so frustrating. When you think about all the evidence and all the destruction that was left behind in these crimes, and we're seeing them in multiple times and multiple places, you think, how can this guy still not be found? And they do, all the all the precincts, they're working the case the best they can. They're going down, they're, they're following all the leads, they're getting DNA samples from people that possibly might be a suspect and they're testing those DNA samples out but they're just ruling out people in the end they're not getting any closer to the guy so it's got to be so frustrating and it's not easy for the sharer men as Steve says it was just so bad the last time I, I told my dad listen I don't think I can do this anymore this is a roller coaster ride and and I can't get on it again I don't want to hear from police anymore until they call and tell us that they got the guy's name so here we are in 2017, and Tennessee tells South Carolina and Missouri, hey, you know what? Let's try that forensic genealogy thing that they've been doing. And the other states were like, okay, we're on it. That's great. But who's going to send that DNA to Parabon to get analyzed? Missouri, for the Sherrick case, says, well, we can't do that. We actually have nothing left after all the testing we've done over the years in order to be able to connect our victims to yours, which was Genevieve's over in South Carolina and the rape victim in Tennessee. And then South Carolina says, and ours is actually pretty deteriorated, so we don't think you're gonna, there's going to be a good profile, but what do you guys have over there in Tennessee? And Tennessee says, ours is actually still pretty good. we got a pretty good amount of it still, so we'll be the ones that actually send it off, and we'll work with Parabon ourselves. And this is where our family mapping comes in. Tennessee law enforcement ended up paying for the Parabon testing and the family search, and then South Carolina paid for the body to be exhumed. Yes, he's dead. The original genealogy report did name a specific suspect. He is dead. He died in 1999. So instead of surveilling him because they can't do that, he's not up and walking around. Police ask his family for DNA to verify that they are, in fact, focusing it on the right family. There is a daughter and she does agree. And then police get a judge to sign off on getting his body exhumed. September 27th of 18 is when they exhume the body, and we get this suspect's actual DNA profile done and directly compare it to the profiles in CODIS. And on October 5th, 2018, the New Madrid County Sheriff's Office 
announces that the man responsible for the 1998 murders of Sherry and Megan Shearer is Robert Eugene Brashers. So who is Robert Eugene Brashers? Who was this piece of shit? This is a fucking asshole. Now on the genetic detective, Cece actually does give us a whole family map of the research that she did. And I'm not going to go over it here, but definitely check it out. And she even interviews uh, Brashers' daughter. And poor Deborah, I feel so horrible for her family. She does tell us that she's happy that her father was outed as the monster that he was. And she just doesn't even, she wishes he wasn't even her father, of course, like no matter what the cherished memories that she had of him, they're all gone at this point. Now, we already know about a, a number of his crimes that were not solved until now. But what about what police knew about him throughout the years when they knew it was him? Well, he was definitely a serial offender, if it wasn't already obvious. He was born in Arkansas, March 13th, 1958. But by the 1990s came around, he was married, and he'd end up having three kids, all girls. Yep, you heard that right. And we're told that he was good to them, so there's that consolation, I guess. I don't even know. We'll hear from one of his daughters in a little bit, but let's get into his this other criminal history that we know about. So we need to go all the way back to November of 1985. Brashers is working in construction, and he does this pretty much for all of the 80s and 90s. And it's the kind of gig that's going to send him off to jobs like out of town, making him mobile. So there you go. That's why we have all these different states on our list. And this is straight from the old-timey newspapers, and it's terrifying. So we're going to start with the title of, the, of one article out of the Miami Herald on 11 because it just pisses me off. <laughs> it says, Police say, woman is shot after sex argument, which um, when we get to the details, we know that they're not having a lover's tiff about sex. He's trying to rape and attack her. Then we've also got um, shot Fort Pierce woman flees attacker. And this is from the Palm Beach Post. So they do seem to give us some different information, but both sets of facts are plausible to go hand in hand. So I've done my best to marry them here to come up with what I hope is the right set of facts. Also, current news reports say that this all happened on November 11th, but all the articles back then say they're reporting that it happened on November 22nd and their articles are dated the 23rd and the 24th. So it's really unclear. I'm thinking it was the 22nd because of the publishing dates, and it was also a Friday. And the 11th, if it really was the 11th, that was a Monday, which would be, which on the circumstances might not be as likely, but it is what it is. So we are in southern eastern Florida at the time, and we are near Fort Pierce. And we have Michelle Wilkerson, who's 24 years old, and she's out on this night hanging out at a local bar in Fort Pierce where she lives. Now, this is legit, like right on the coast of the Atlantic Ocean. Brashers meets up with her. They have a few drinks. Things are going well. And then she decides she's going to leave the bar. Now, supposedly they consumed like a six pack of Budweiser, but I'm not sure if like either of them were really drunk. It was probably just reported by the bartender or something. They were certainly not wasted. After she leaves the bar, she's walking to her own house. She's walking home. Brashers catches up with her in his pickup truck and offers her a ride. 
or who knows what. Now, this is the 80s newspapers that we're going off of here, so they do kind of, like we see in the title, woman is shot after sex argument. But you looking at that, and you know it's not a, a sex argument. You know that there was an attack. So we don't really know if she got in the truck for some fun times, or if it was just a ride home that she thought she was getting, or if he legit just like snatched her off the street. But they do end up driving about four miles west away from the center of town, and he parks the truck in a citrus grove. We are in Florida after all, right? Things go south in the cab of the truck. They, quote, argue about sex and end up wrestling over a gun that Brashers pulls out. Now, Michelle, yes, another fierce woman that we get to hear about, she's stuck between fighting for the gun and trying to escape. And just as she decides she's just going to bolt from the truck, she gets shot not once, but twice at close range by this piece of shit. She gets hit once in the neck and once literally in her head. Luckily, she does manage to get out. And also luckily, after chasing her into the brush a bit, he gives up and he just decides he's going to take off. So there's Michelle, shot, bleeding, dying, and she needs to get help. Now, this woman is incredible. You need to check this out. She crawls her way into a culvert, you know, like one of those big metal tubes that we see like by the highways for water. Well, this one, though, that she crawls into is less than two feet wide and it's half full of mud. But somehow she managed to get out on the other side. It's just like in the Shawshank Redemption, only this is a fierce woman who's just been attacked and shot up. And her culvert, her little tube thing was tiny. What a badass lady. I wish if I could only be so determined. It's amazing. Now, on the other side, there's no people. It's the middle of the night. I believe it's a Friday. It might have been a Monday night. And so, and she's in just some kind of like orchard farm thing. But she does see an outbuilding, like an office for the business. So she trudges her way over there, probably looking like a zombie. She's shot, full of mud, barely conscious. And she calls police from the payphone that's just right up against the building. And while she's waiting for police, can you believe this? She gets into one of the company trucks that are there and turns on the headlights so they can find her easier when they get there. It's incredible. By the time she's found, she's practically dead. She's slumped against the wall and she's just passed out. Now, thank God they were able to get some details about her attacker from her on the way to the hospital. Um, it's she says it's such and such looking guy driving such and such kind of pickup truck. There's cigarettes on the dash. There's a red shirt in there. There's some kind of trees. There's like brush or tree branches in the bed. Oh my god! In the meantime, this piece of shit Brasher's asshole. He's like driving away and he's thinking, "Shit, man, I got to get rid of this gun. What if the girl's found? When this girl is found, they're going to be pulling bullets from her. So I got to get rid of this this gun." So he drives himself over to the shore and he pulls his truck onto the beach, walks himself out into the water and chucks the gun. But the trouble is when he gets back to his truck, it's stuck in the sand. He's a fucking idiot. Like you're 29 years old at this point and you don't know about tires and sand. My God, you fucking asshole. Good for us though, because he's going to need some help getting it off the beach. And so he's walking along highway. Um, it's, it's a one a it's, um, you know how like you have like you're on the coast, but then there's like this other like a, a far reaching out outward, like long strip of an island. We have them here. Um, I'm, on, I'm on Long Island. They, we have them a whole bunch of them here down by Robert Moses. 
And um, so it's one of those things. So it's like a highway that's that's kind of like it's a highway on an island away from the shore. So that's where he's walking and he's just hoping to flag someone down. And here we have Deputy Angela Darling in her police cruiser stopping to ask him what's up. And she had just heard over the radio to be on the lookout for a guy with this guy's description and a pickup truck. So she calls over the radio. She says, I think I got him. Bring me some backup. And when they get there, they check out the truck and boom. This is the guy that's either a murderer or an attempted murderer. Because we have to see how Michelle fares in the next few days. Thankfully, Michelle does recover from her injuries. God bless her. She's going to be about 60 years old now. I don't see her on Find a Grave. So we think she's still with us. And of course, we do hope that she is well. And the rest of her life has been kind to her. Piece of shit Brashers was convicted of attempted murder for trying to kill her. And ended up serving a total of three and a half years. Not sure what the full sentence was, but he was out within three and a half years, free to travel, and he goes hundreds of miles north, killing Genevieve Zetricki in April of 1990. After he kills Genevieve, and by the way, he did live in Greenville at the time of her murder, in February of 1992, he's picked up in a stolen car with a stolen gun and, get this, a police scanner, a police jacket, a fake Tennessee license, and a homemade burglary kit. So what the hell was he going to do that night, I wonder? Or what did he maybe just come from doing? Uh, Courts throw him back in jail, and he sits there until February 1997. So he's getting more time in jail for having these uh, stolen items on him. Yes, you can't steal. You have to go to jail for that. But just seven years earlier, he mutilated a lady. He shot her in the face. He tried to kill her, and he only got three and a half years for that. Hmm. Anyway, so here we go again. March 1997 is his attack on the 14-year-old girl in Memphis. You get out of jail, you go find another person to brutalize. You've been sitting in jail just waiting to get out so you can go do it again. He's got an itch. He's got to scratch it. Then we've got a break-in on April 12th of 98 in is it Paragold? Paragod? It's P-A-R-A-G-O-U-L-D. This is in Arkansas, and it is by the border over by Missouri and Tennessee. Now, this time, he had actually done some construction work on the house that he was breaking into. But once again, we can tell this was a targeted attack. We know this because the only resident was a single female. And check this out. When he was caught, he had a video camera. Uh, some kind of weapon, like probably a gun, because it, that seems to be his preference, and other tools. Now, I'm not sure what they were, but probably break-in tools. Later on, they had found that he had also cut the phone lines to the house. Jesus. And this is actually where he lives. This is the town that he's living in. So now he's hitting his own town, or at least trying to. And he's arrested again, but they let him out on bond. Are you fucking kidding me? I am a very big advocate for police. I know I'm sounding all enraged at law enforcement. It's just hard for me because nowadays we are we expect and we see certain precautions that are taken. You can't be a repeat offender and just get let out on bond. But back then, so I'm not really blaming 
police departments every time I get all hot and bothered about this stuff. It really is the times. I just want to make sure that that's clear and understood. And yes, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I still get these feels in me when I see these things. So he's out on bond. And even though that they know that he's got a prior record, they only know at this point about the six years prior with the stolen gun in the car, the police stuff, and then the 13 years earlier. But that was an attempted murder. So what the fuck? Supposedly, he is going to stand for trial. But in the meantime, what are we supposed to do? Because he's let out on the streets. And what about the lady that he was going to kill and rape that night? Oh, oh my God. We had that uh, in the Pamela Mara case with Bruce Lindahl, remember? Because what was was her name? Debbie. And um, she was pressing charges and he he was let out. And then she ended up disappearing before trial. They found her body in the woods years later. But he never got put away for it. Now, thank God that that didn't happen to this woman here. And if we go to the timeline, this is all like two weeks after he killed the sharers and he shot the other lady at her trailer. So this piece of shit won't, won't, he's just not going to quit. This is crazy. Things are quiet for the rest of the year, though, at least. So it seems he's either preoccupied because, you know, don't forget, he's got a, a wife and kids. Or maybe he just got scared and because he got caught for the local break in and he was just deciding to cool it. Because he's out on bond, the police have got their eye on him. I'm not sure. Because when we see men like this, they really do have a hard time quitting. He's got to have other victims out there, but this is going to be the end of what we know that he's done. And then, in, then big stuff happens come early the next year before trial. His family is never going to be the same again. On January 13th of 1999, local police see a car in a motel parking lot a Motel 8 in Kennett, Missouri, still the same general geographic area. They run the tag and discover that the plates are stolen and they're just put on this other car that they're looking at right in front of them. So they've got to figure out who's staying there with that car. And it turns out it's Brasher's and his wife and their three daughters. What the hell are they doing there? Well, he crossed the state lines. So I'm wondering Is he fleeing from Arkansas for the pending charges of possibly breaking in and videotaping some heinous act he was going to he was planning on doing with the phone lines cut? Police don't know yet at the time when they go knocking. No one comes out of the room. But before too long, they've got a standoff in their hands. And after four hours, Brasher's wife and daughters are allowed to leave the room. At this point, police do know he's got charges that he's waiting for to go to trial and soon after that, he shoots himself in an effort to kill himself. Police and paramedics rush in. They discover that he's actually still alive. He's just gravely wounded. And they send him off to the hospital where he ends up dying six days later on January 19th. And all this, they think, is for the stolen car that he didn't want to get caught with and possibly fleeing for the trial. But from what we know now, about the sharers and the rape and Genevieve, it's possible that he might've thought that they were picking him up for all of that other shit. And since 1999, his family is just mourning the loss of their husband and father. And they don't have any clue either about the severity of his violent crimes, except for the two priors and this current charge. Daughter Deborah will tell us, quote, we lived with a serial killer and a rapist and I didn't know it. He was an amazing father a father anybody would have wanted to have. 
They always say serial killers live two separate lives. Some live just to kill. Then there's others like my father who lived in plain sight for years. Unquote. Now, Deborah is about 29 years old now, and we hope the best for her. It's, it's so horrible how one person's evil deeds not only affect their victims' families and friends, but their own family as well. Deborah's mom passed away in December 2018, just two months after the announcement was made that her husband was a serial killer and rapist, and it's heartbreaking. And for the girls, the daughters, to grow up feeling like their father was the best father in the world, even if he might have had an alcohol problem, sometimes can't control his temper. But now it's 19 years later, and police are asking you for a DNA sample, and then you find out just how evil your father was capable of being. I don't know. I just feel so much for these families. And of course, you're going to say to the public, I'm not my father. We didn't know what he was doing. And it's true, you're not. But now all your cherished family memories of him are just tarnished when you think about what he was doing when he left home, when he went to go on those construction jobs. It's got to be so hard to reconcile that. And in the interview that she gives to local newspapers, the Greenville News, Deborah seems to have come to terms with it, telling us, quote, I wish I could take the other's pain away. He's not a man. He was a person who breathes air that he didn't deserve for many years. It just makes me sick to my stomach, unquote. But all in all, over the years, this piece of shit brashers, he's been charged with attempted murder, burglary, impersonating a police officer, and unlawful possession of a weapon. So could we have found him without forensic genealogy? After all this time, Listen, we've got 28 years it took for the Genevieve's case, 20 years for Sherry and Megan's case, and 19 years for the rape of a minor case. I don't think they would have turned up any more evidence or gotten any other leads from interviews at that point for any of them. So that's just going to leave the DNA. And he was dead by January of 99. So after that, there weren't going to be any more victims where he would be caught, and then his DNA would be placed into CODIS with his name on it. And why no CODIS? Well, he was all over CODIS. He was, but his name, like we just said, wasn't attached to it. Brasher's conviction in 86 was before CODIS took shape, and the stolen car and gun conviction with the police stuff, that wasn't a violent offense. Now, if he had stood trial and was convicted of the the attempt to break in with the phone lines and the video camera in 1998, then his DNA would have made it into the system. So maybe, actually, if he hadn't killed himself and he went through the trial and he ended up going to jail and whatever, we actually could have solved this sooner. We would have been able to solve it back then because his victims would have matched his profile once they got into CODIS. But because he offed himself, it didn't get pulled and put into CODIS because I guess they didn't have a conviction. I guess those were the laws at the time. So do we think he might have more victims out there? I absolutely do think so. But if that's the case, these would be victims that he probably like brought out to the wilderness or something where they weren't left in their left in their house or left on the street or whatever. So otherwise they would have been found right away. So I think he does have some victims. Either he has rape victims who just never reported it, or if he's got murder victims, they're out there somewhere in the wilderness. And if those victims have been found and identified, they're likely found after any of his 
after his DNA had rotted away. And so they weren't able to be tied to, they're not going to be able to be tied to him. I don't know. It's crazy. It's just so, it's just so great though, that we have this because like I've said in the past, you know, like there's no other course for law enforcement at this point for cases like this that are so old. They've got no leads. They've got no more evidence to work. The only evidence that they have is the DNA at this point, and they got to use it in whatever ways that they can. So thank God for the family map research, because like with assholes like this, especially when they're dead, they're not committing any more crimes to get themselves into the, into CODIS. And we also don't want a, a series of cases where we just want this this perpetrator to commit another violent offense and then get caught and then ends up in CODIS so we can solve the others. We don't want to sacrifice another victim for that. So that's my take. Now for our, for our closing tribute, we do get that from Stephen. And um, when he talks about hearing that his, and when he talks about hearing that his mom and sister's killer was identified, he tells us that he, he doesn't really have closure or any feels any different about the loss. In fact, even to this day, if he hears a creak in the night, he'll wake up and he'll go investigate it. He tells us he does have in the house himself. And he actually still lives on the property where he grew up. He tells us, quote, for the longest time, I was pretty negative about everything. For the last few years, though, I have started getting more positive about things, unquote. And then we just have one final thought. This is actually going to go to Lieutenant Philip Gregory. He was one of the lead investigators on the Sharers case, and he is with the Missouri State Highway Patrol. So this is what he says when asked about looking forward and solving other cold cases with forensic genealogy. Quote, my hope is it would motivate some agencies that have some evidence that maybe they haven't taken a look at in a few years to go back and re-examine that set and see if they can potentially develop a DNA profile from them. Then also look at those cases around their guy's location in those times. And that is the case of the 1998 murders of Sherry and Megan Scherer. So yeah, there you go. There's another one where we have a perpetrator who's out there doing just one or two things that the government knows about before he's tossed in jail forever or or dies. And then later on, we find out there's a whole handful of other crimes that we didn't even know that guy committed. I'm so glad it's coming to the forefront now and we can get some families to get some kind of closure or at least resolution to the mystery that they've been plagued with for so long, for decades really at this point. Now, when I went to the New Madrid Sheriff's Department's website to take a look at the announcement in the press conference. One of the comments was from a friend of Janina Phelps Hastings. So she's going to be our unsolved, possibly maybe we can solve it case this week. We're just going to get to it. I'm going to quote directly from the pinned post at the top of the Facebook page titled, Help Find the Murderers of Geneva Phelps Hastings. It was a Friday evening, June 27th, 1975 when 18-year-old Geneva Phelps Hastings decided to go to an outdoor party at Wolf Creek, located outside of Poplar Bluff, Missouri. The party was attended by dozens of teens. Geneva had given birth just a mere three weeks prior to a baby boy that she named Tommy, and she was ready to get out and see her friends. Little did she know she would not make it back home. Geneva Phelps Hastings was known as a kind-hearted teenager growing up in rural Missouri. She left her little boy with her mother and traveled to Wolf Creek 
where a large group of teens had an outdoor party. Several witnesses recall seeing her there and witnessed her leaving. Nothing seemed abnormal or troublesome, but that would be the last time anyone saw the young mother alive. Later that evening, Tom Phelps, Geneva's stepfather, was returning home when he noticed her blue car abandoned by the side of the gravel road only 0.2 miles from home. And this would be Saturday, June 28th, around 1 a.m. He stopped, thinking that she was having car trouble, but she was nowhere to be found. Her car was running, the driver's door was open, the lights were on, and her brad leather purse was lying on the front seat. So robbery was not the motive. Perhaps she had walked on to the house, Tom thought, but she, was, she wasn't there either. Tom and Shirley returned to Geneva's car and drove it home. And there was no sign of their daughter. Five days later, a neighbor noticed buzzards circling around a gravel stretch known as Lover's Lane off Pine Valley Road, a heavily wooded area off County Road 522, six miles north of Poplar Bluff. Geneva's body was found by a Butler County deputy. It had been dragged off the path and deep in the woods. She was 117 feet from the road. She had been stabbed twice with what authorities believed to be a small pocket knife. And... It was apparent that more than one person had pulled Geneva through the woods from her car and beat her to the ground before stabbing her with a small weapon to her death. It was determined by the coroner she had died of stab wounds to the chest, and the evidence shows that more than one person dragged Geneva's lifeless body by her arms back off the gravel path. As they pulled her deeper into the woods, she lost her left sandal. They left her body deep in the woods, but not covered or buried. So that's a really rough one. Um, there is some talk, or there was some talk at the beginning, maybe it, in the beginning of the investigation, maybe it was possibly the stepfather, but he has been ruled out. And the page makes it clear that he is not a suspect, so we're not even going to go there. Why are you picking up um, you know, a young, pretty teenage girl out of her car on you know, 1 o'clock in the morning, or maybe 12 it was, who knows? Um, the, granted, she was stabbed. There you go. There's your up close and personal possible that she was also raped, but we don't know for sure because it's not in the newspapers, at least as far as I can tell. But maybe it's possible, so hopefully it will pan out and we will get some more information in the coming years. And so there's that. Um, I think we're going to call it good for this episode. Thank you so much for sticking through it and coming back. And if you're a new listener, I hope you enjoy or at least find it interesting. <laughs> the enjoy part is weird, I know. But anyway, always you can find the sources and the script at thetiesthatfind.com and, of course, photographs as well. And then photos, of course, are going to be on the socials. Please, of course, always uh, rate, review, follow, and share. And until next week, I hope your family is well. Bye. Bye.